0: listening to why we do what we do hello this is abraham
1: and this is miranda
0: so this is why we do what we do welcome welcome and uh i'm gonna start miranda i want to just ask you a question please like i like to do you know (laughs) And so, uh, have you ever been to a new house? And I'm thinking like a large house specifically. Mm. And and you started to wander around and learn the lay of the place.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure.
0: And did someone like at the end when you successfully made your way out, hand you a cookie and tell you good job navigating that house?
1: That did not happen. No.
0: <laughs> okay. Do you think that if you had gone back into that house, you could have maybe found, like, like let's say you needed to go back, back in to use the restroom. Could you have found a restroom, do you think?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think I would have been, that would have been, a. I would have been motivated and uh, that would have worked out for me. Yeah.
0: Okay. Great. <laughs> and what about uh, if you've ever been to like a new city, gotten some direction somewhere, and maybe were able to find your way around after having practiced that once or twice?
1: Certainly okay
0: and again and that did someone hand you like a piece of cheese or like a glass of wine at the end <laughs> like, g- g- good job getting here
1: no one handed me that but but i'm sure there's been times when uh i i was trying to get to a place where said items were available Not gonna okay lie.
0: <laughs> that's fair <laughs> if one is in napa doing some cheese tasting they probably lear- learn their directions better than <laughs> other places perhaps perhaps all right so all, all that is to say that we're talking about is uh is when you learn to navigate a place without anybody sort of i guess rewarding you for doing so right
1: exactly so this uh this concept of cognitive maps or cognitive mapping
0: yep exactly right and so we'll go over about the history of this the person or people who were involved in developing this concept, where it's gone since then, and the experiment that made it all happen, right? Sounds great. And I would like... All right, perfect. And I would like to begin by talking a little bit about maybe... I don't want to call it traditional learning theory, because that doesn't mean anything. But let's call it the sort of reinforcement associative learning theory, right? Okay. That's the one that, uh, that most people would remember as from B.F. Skinner and using positive reinforcement uh, and negative reinforcement and punishment and that sort of thing. Uh, it all comes from operant learning theory specifically. And the idea inside of this is that an organism, be it human or animal or whatever, an organism learns when they do something and then there's some kind of outcome afterward that will that would be either positive or maybe aversive. So they might pick something up and they smell it and it smells good and they eat it, it tastes good and they learn this that was reinforced that behavior of, of exploring that that new thing that they found was reinforced the idea being here that we don't have to say were they thinking about it were they were they like invest in investigation mode they were you know we don't have to do any of that what we do know is that we see that when they look at this thing and they consume it and it's good and then they they then are more likely to investigate similar objects afterward there'd be reinforcement and that's sort of the idea of this learning theory that there has to be some kind of outcome that is positive for an organism to have learned anything about that experience right exactly okay well okay that's a sort of very sort of by the psych 101 textbook way of talking about this and it gets a little more nuanced than that but Here's where we need to begin, because we mentioned this thing called cognitive maps. Maybe some of you have heard of this idea. Maybe you could try and derive, based off of our little banter at the beginning, what that is. Um, But let's, let's go into this. So what, Miranda, are cognitive maps?
1: So cognitive maps or cognitive mapping, it's a concept that was introduced by a psychologist named Tolman. Okay, and a cognitive map is essentially a type of mental representation which serves as an individual um, in order to acquire, code, store, recall, decode information about relative locations and attributes of phenomena in their everyday or metaphorical spatial environment.
0: Yeah, the idea here being that this is some kind of special knowledge, and this is something where somebody or something that can learn it—it's mind's eye can visualize images sort of arranged in a space where they have been in order to reduce the cognitive load, which here we're talking about how much effort it takes to use your working memory uh, to enhance recall and learning of an area where you are. Given the example of exploring maybe a really large house and you remember maybe where uh, where the restroom is if you needed to go back in or something like that, if the idea inside of this is that you have developed the special knowledge and can and have created sort of a visual space of the area where you are in by having explored it right
1: so Abraham can you tell us a little bit about Tolman who really kind of uh Invented this yes. concept?
0: Yeah. So there, there, was another, there was another person who's credited with this. I want to go over his backstory in a moment. Um, uh, his name is, uh, I'm reading it as Blodgett or Blodgett, maybe. It also looks like it could be Blodgett, but I think Blodgett is probably it. So, um, but let's start with with Tolman. Okay. So Edward Tolman was born in 1886. He was born in West Newton, Massachusetts. Uh, he had a brother who was later a physicist at Caltech, whose name was Richard Chase. Tolman. Three names, Richard Chase Tolman. (laughs) And so Edward Tolman, he studied at uh, MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and uh, he also received his PhD from Harvard University in 1915. Now, in 1912, Tolman went to Germany to study for his PhD examination. And while he was there, he was introduced to and also later returns to study Gestalt or Gestalt psychology. Now, most of his career was actually spent at UC Berkeley in California Uh, from about 1918 to 1954, and then he died about five years after that, and that's where he also taught psychology.
1: Yeah, so as far as Tolman's history as it relates to cognitive maps, the the concept itself was introduced um, by Tolman, by name. There's also, you know, uh, a year prior Blodgett, which we'll talk about, also contributed to this theory, but he really founded this upon a concept known as proposive behaviorism. And this also promoted the concept known as latent learning.
0: Okay, so let's go ahead and talk really quick about Blodgett because he just it's relevant to this idea of the latent learning and cognitive maps that we're going to talk about. And so, found from a couple of different sources, some said specifically that Tolman coined the phrase latent learning um, and that he arranged the original experiment. Another source claimed, or at least gave credit to the author Blodgett a year prior, actually, to the original Tolman study in 1929. So, and then Tolman does cite Blodgett and other things. A little unclear on that timeline precisely, but those two were both involved, at least, in uh, in the development of latent learning, which was uh, related in, intrinsically to cognitive maps. And so... Blodgett obviously didn't really make it into the history books, at least not as clearly as Tolman did. Uh, Tolman was even ranked as the 45th most cited psychologist in the 20th century.
1: Yeah, and although Tolan was a behaviorist in methodology, he wasn't what we think of as a radical behaviorist like someone like B.F. Skinner, for example.
0: Yeah, so he studied with rats and he really wanted to demonstrate that the animals could learn things about the world and they could use those, the things that they learned, those facts, in a sort of flexible way rather than that sort of automatic response that was triggered by environmental stimuli, so rather than this uh, the SR or S R S psychology more commonly associated with operant learning theory.
1: Yeah. So Tolman. Um, relied more on what we refer to as an SS or stimulus stimulus arrangement uh, when it came to explaining uh, his learning theory. Um, Essentially, you know, non-reinforcement theorists. He really drew on that gestalt psychology to argue that animals, you know, they could learn from the connections between stimuli and they didn't really need any explicit biology, significant event to make learning occur, thus latent learning.
0: Okay, so let's go ahead and Dive into the actual experiment because this is the the main crux of what's going on in how this came to be described at all. And so, in 1930, Tolman conducted this study, and what he was looking at was these groups of rats.
1: Yeah. So the study employed three groups of food deprived rats. And Tolman placed each rat in the start box of this 14-unit T-maze, which is a pretty, if you, if you, maybe we can link in the show notes an image of it, but they're pretty neat little contraptions. And then the rat was left on its own uh, to kind of traverse the maze and and get to the end.
0: Yeah, so there were three groups of rats. That's important to know what was going on for each group because this is exactly the purpose of the experiment, was to study the effects of their learning this maze depending on which group they were in. So in one group... Uh, The rats had food available when they solved the maze on the first day of the study.
1: Yeah, and then a second group of rats, they never found food at the end of the maze for the entire study. Right,
0: just no food at all. And then the third group, they had no food for the entire duration of the study for the first 10 days. Sorry, not the entire duration. For the first 10 days, and on the 11th day, the last day, the experimenter did put food at the end of the box prior to the rat's entry into the maze so that 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 would be available once they solved it.
1: So there were some interesting results of this experiment, right?
0: Yeah. Okay, so what happened was that that third group of rats, the ones that did not have food the entire time, but there was food on the last day of the experiment, right? Their average error rate in completing and solving this maze decreased significantly, and their average speed solving the maze also increased significantly from the start of the maze to the end of the maze compared to the averages from the the rats that always got food, the group one, and the uh, the rats that never got food, the group two. And so the the drop in errors and increases increased speed occurred really really quickly. I mean literally overnight they went from sort of average speed, they were completely the same as group 2, the group that never got food, to being able to solve the maze with very few errors very quickly.
1: And as many textbook authors note, so the rats in the third group had, through their wanderings, they learned a great deal about the maze without really ever getting so much as a single morsel for their trouble.
0: And so, Tolman and Hanzek, one of the co-authors on this, interpreted these data to mean that uh, learning could take place in the absence of any reinforcement. And their explanation derived from this essentially was that, all right, if you have a group of rats that's not receiving any food reward at all for completing this maze or any food that's involved in this maze, except on the very last day. And then all of a sudden they're able to complete this maze with very low errors. That implies that they were learning the maze, even though they weren't receiving that food reward, which according to them would have been required according to operant theory for those animals to have learned anything about that space.
1: So, what does all of this really say about latent learning?
0: Right. So, as I, just, as I said, the, there's this idea of these cognitive maps, and that is sort of a more specific application of this idea of latent learning. And Tolman described that as, quote, learning which is not apparent in the learner's behavior at the time of learning, but which manifests later when a suitable motivation and circumstances appear, end quote.
1: Yeah, so essentially, this is a form of learning that is not immediately expressed in an overt response, and it occurs without any obvious reinforcement of the behavior or associations that are learned.
0: All right, so saying this in sort of everyday terms, latent learning essentially refers to the process in which learning takes place, but there's no demonstration of knowledge, and there's no obvious reward um, of that of, of that process where they're engaging with the learning, this latent learning, um, and it doesn't actually show up again until there is motivation for it to show up.
1: Exactly. And interest in this concept of latent learning, it arose largely because the phenomenon, it really seemed to conflict with this widely held view that reinforcement was absolutely necessary for learning to occur.
0: So until the study was conducted, as as I said... Many people who were not necessarily the behavior theorists or radical behaviorists, their interpretation and understanding of operant and behavior theory was that reinforcement was absolutely, critically necessary for animals to learn tasks such as mazes.
1: Yeah, and a variety of other studies conducted with rats indicated that varying levels of latent learning occurred.
0: Uh, yeah, so in the next decade, in 1949, a researcher by the name of John Seward did studies with those T-mazes again, and rats were presented with maze tasks, again with food and with no food, and again showed that rats were able to figure out tasks with food present more quickly. There's actually something we didn't say before, was that in group one, the ones that always had food, they were the fastest with the least amount of errors um, that, that was there. So it did show that the food did help them, um, but until they were motivated to do so, that third group didn't show anything different from the group that had no food at all.
1: And there was another study in uh, 1952 done with, with rats and mazes, right? Right.
0: So this researcher, whose name was Bending, uh, they conducted this study with rats. And this is a modified maze. And this one had sort of a, a water escape component. And what happened was the rats were um, already fed. So in the previous study, as we had mentioned, the, the rats were very were pretty hungry. Um, we don't know how hungry, but usually the way that they describe it is 80% of their food feeding weight so um fairly hungry so that motivation is high to complete it now in this particular one they wanted to say well let's get them really well fed first and make it so they have to escape from something that they don't like which is that they're stuck in this water maze and then what they did is they then put them in that uh in that maze and they were hungry and then had food at the end and again showed that they were um, they learned better when they were food deprived um, and they were able to escape it more quickly, even though they hadn't been getting a food reward to begin with.
1: Very interesting. And then in 1954, a researcher named Stevenson, he actually explored latent learning with children. So uh, in his arrangement, he required children to explore a series of objects. And the goal there was for them to find a key And what he found was that children were able to find non-key objects faster if they had previously seen them, indicated there was some sort of cognitive map or latent learning involved.
0: Yeah, there's a fairly famous study kind of uh, exploring with humans uh, this this thing that had been being talked about with rats of latent learning. They also showed in this article or argued that the ability of children to learn in this way, the sort of latent learning way, increased so they got better at it as they got older. Okay, so let's talk about some of the research that's been done with respect to looking at brains. Um, this is called neurophysiology and in, in the, the field in which the, these studies were done. And these were looking at those underlying neural processes that are going on when latent learning takes place.
1: So in one study, patients with something called medial temporal amnesia, um, meaning they had a particular difficulty with what could be defined as latent learning tasks um, which required a representational processing and attentional components.
0: And another study conducted provided evidence that an absence of a prion protein disrupts latent learning and other memory functions in that previously described water maze latent learning task.
1: So some other contemporary examples of latent learning um, could include things like observational learning. So there's a lot of research into this particular concept.
0: Right. So an example or what's meant by that is uh, if if you take children who learn by watching the actions of their parents, um, but uh, only demonstrate later what they learned when it's necessary for them to do so. Um, For example, if a parent drives their child to school every day, the child does not necessarily know their way to school until one day the child has to get to school on their own and they actually do remember the way to get there.
1: Yeah. Another example would be, you know, um, a person who learns how to wash dishes by watching someone, but they don't actually wash dishes until they live by themselves, and they're able to do it.
0: Yeah, and a, a very similar as someone who learns to cook by watching someone on a cooking television show, even though they might not necessarily be practicing all those moves at the same time, they get a general sense of how to perform the recipe and then exhibits that knowledge later when asked to make a dish for some kind of work event or for some group of people or a dinner party or something like that.
1: So there is a rival theory to this whole latent learning cognitive mapping, right?
0: All right, so uh, Clark L. Hull was a behavioral psychologist, and um, the prevailing behavioral theories throughout the period of experimental research on latent learning were generally that stimulus response association, similar to that done by Pavlov and by Watson. And uh, the two leading SR Association proponents were Clark L. Hull and another psychologist by the name of Edwin Guthrie. And Hull developed this elaborate and systematic account of behavior beginning with the acquisition of skills that were that SR or reflexive association, that reactive one to um some kind of stimulus, with the response subsequently varying in strength uh, due to the variables such as primary motivation or drive, and then positive and secondary reinforcement, stimulus intensity, and then incentive.
1: Yeah, and one of Hull's great strengths as an experimenter was his skill in being able to systematically craft these experimental tests of numerous hypotheses, which he developed to verify his systems. So
0: for Hull, what what occurred during latent learning was the establishment and modification of SR associations due to a change in the excitatory, that is the reaction potentials, of a bit of learned behavior. Said another way, I think that what Hull was essentially describing is that there is a stimulus response reaction that occurs without the the reinforcement bit or that might be there but it's smaller and weaker it's developing reactions to those stimuli that's still part of learning as demonstrated again like the 10th time i've said his name pavlov with the salivating Dog is experiments
1: and then uh bf skinner actually went on to write a paper in 1950 entitled are theories of learning necessary Question mark, um, and and this really persuaded many psychologists interested in animal learning that it was far more productive, really, to just focus on behavior itself rather than trying to make guesses or inferences about the mental states behind this observable behavior. This is
0: actually one of his most famous and most controversial papers that he wrote. And I think would be really interesting to review in a episode all on its own, specifically in the context of the idea of teaching and learning. And that this stirred up, um, this stirred up some reactions. And I think he even says at the very top of the paper, um, which again is titled our theories of learning necessary. If I had to ask, <laughs> then you think, you know, what the answer is going to be. Um, and, a lot of people immediately sort of bristled at the idea and what that means. And probably people still do today. But what he made some uh, really interesting arguments inside of that. And he also specifically, um, well, let, let's save it. Let's not get into it now. that That's its own discussion. So let's get into a little bit more about sort of the debate going on between the rival theories of how latent learning comes about or what's going on in these situations where these Cognitive maps seem to be the thing that is allowing a rat to solve this maze.
1: Yeah. So interestingly enough, there there are some sources that that state that within kind of the experimental, methodological, and theoretical realms of of uh, psychology, by the ni- mid 1960s, many psychologists considered the matter of latent learning to be dead or just irrelevant. You know, that being said, there there have been certainly some more recent since the 1960s some some research that has looked into it.
0: Right so a claim was made in the 60s that that learning was dead, but that was even after that the, there wasn't really a, a solid sort of uh, line that was drawn that that said that this is done. Really the debate wasn't wasn't over yet and again, what happened later was that a ther- another theoretical position demonstrated itself to be scientifically superior to the other um, and then this debate, sort of ended because it became clear to psychological researchers and theorists that given the hypothetical nature of the variables thought to be involved in latent learning and cognitive maps, no solution, no empirical solution was really likely ever to occur.
1: Yeah, so the missing history there and this kind of erroneous conclusion noted Above. This was really compounded when lear- the learning theories of Hull, Spence, and Guthrie and others, you know, um, consigned to the history books while Tolman was there being, you know, declared the winner of this debate. And as Hull and Guthrie were retired from their prominence as behaviorists, Skinner assumed their former position um, within this kind of behaviorist of the record and in, in introductory textbooks. And I know, Abraham, you teach quite a bit of introductory psychology courses. Um, what have you kind of seen within this? this this transition, this shift uh, within those books.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right, that you don't see much of Hull or Guthrie. You do see some Skinner, still shows up in introductory psychology textbooks, um, usually in talking about operant learning and sometimes about language, usually in relation to Chomsky, which deserves its own treatment. Um, However, uh, yeah, the other ones were not mentioned. Tolman does come up. Tolman's experiment is almost always in psychological textbooks, and it talks about his experiment and this idea of latent learning. So it really did seem to be the case that although there were some back and forth and there was an article even claiming that the idea of latent learning was essentially gone, it's not. It's still there. And um, although there's not a lot of people who do research on latent learning specifically now... Um, what people do research on are things like observational learning, which is implied by this idea of latent learning. So, It does show up in textbooks. You'll still see Tolman's name. Uh, You'll still see Skinner's name. But largely, this debate and the history of the debate has kind of disappeared. You don't see much of that anymore. You really just get what was the outcome of that, which is we remember Tolman, we remember Skinner, and that's about as far as we go in talking about this. And Skinner's not really talked about um, with respect to Tolman, except to say, usually in the textbooks, they'll say, Skinner proposed that you needed rewards for learning, and Tolman showed otherwise by doing this experiment with rats and then they'll show their cool little graph from his experiment where you had group three got really really fast at the end even though it seemed like they shouldn't be able to because they didn't have any food available there and so um, Skinner's behaviorism was said in is is described as needing that reinforcement component and that's why um, Tolman made that valuable contribution of of saying um, and and therefore is able to stick around in those textbooks okay so let's talk a little bit more about this idea of, uh, a latent learning and the cognitive maps thing. And, and this idea by Blodgett, um, again, we described that his study was published in 1929, which is a year before Tolman's was described. And it, so if this timeline is, is correct, then Blodgett is the originator. But again, I did find sources that specifically credited Tolman with having coined that term. So I'm not totally clear now um, he, he did perform the experiments. He also came up with this concept again, according to one source. And, uh, in this one, he, it was observed that the experimental groups, as long as they were not finding food, they didn't really appear to be learning. Their errors were just as high the entire time. However, on the days succeeding their first, f- uh, round of finding food at the very end of the maze on those opportunities, their errors decreased remarkably very quickly and their uh, time to solve the maze increase or decreased also very very quickly so we saw that they were able to get out very quickly making very few mistakes and so this was a initial re- uh, version of this and it really appeared just briefly to summarize this that those non-rewarded trials these animals were still learning more than it seemed like they were learning because even though they were learning it didn't really look like they were learning anything because there wasn't You couldn't have seen that. They weren't trying to get out of the maze. They're just kind of walking around. And so again, this idea that it didn't manifest itself, that learning didn't really show up until there was that motivation, which was having the food available at the end. And so Blodgett referred to this as this latent learning. So it's kind of ongoing, even though you don't know.
1: So interpreting these results kind of anthropomorphically, we would say that as long as the animals are not getting any food at the end of the maze, they continue to take their time in going through it, and they continue to enter into many dead ends within the maze. However, once they were able to get to the food, they demonstrated that during these preceding non-rewarded trials, they, they had actually learned um, where many of the dead ends were, and they had really been building up you know, some sort of map that they could utilize the whole time as soon as they were motivated to do so.
0: Now, related to this idea of latent learning and observational learning, there was a term that was coined called vicarious trial and error um, by a um, a professor named Munzinger in Colorado. I'm not going to go into exactly what that implies, but it—I mean—the name sort of suggests what it. Um, I guess what's what's being stated there so um, that's just another idea going along with this uh, this whole suggestion that there is this observational learning that can occur which is to say vicarious learning even though you're not the one performing the action so let's go ahead and talk about a little bit more in from the behavioral perspective of how that might be that phenomenon might be described using um, Skinner and the operant theory position
1: Yeah, so it's definitely important to note that Skinner, actually, he he never claimed that reinforcement was absolutely necessary for learning to occur. That's a common misconception.
0: Another common misconception, which is one that Tolman sort of implied, is that reinforcement means food, or some people might think of reinforcement meaning praise, but it means that there is something external and immediate that somebody else has to give, not necessarily the idea that Reinforcement could be any event that follows a behavior or any experience that follows a behavior that um, therefore makes it more likely for that pattern to occur again, which is what is actually reinforcement.
1: Exactly. And, um, you know, understanding learning and behaving means really understanding the biology of the organism and its interaction with its environment.
0: So although the descriptions of events that take place, such as reinforcement, sounds like if we're looking at what's happening in a box with a rat, it seems pretty easy to observe that when they press the lever, they get the food, that's reinforcement. However, when we're looking out in a, a different type of environmental arrangement, such as a map, or kind of just out in the world, the these are not as easy, discrete little events that we can look at and definitely parse out that in that observation, this was reinforcement that was taking place, right? That's why we need those good, objective, sort of scaled-down studies where we can really clearly break down what's the relevant factor that's going on inside of this. And uh, but when you step away from those really simplified experiments, that doesn't mean that those things aren't going on. It just means that they're not as as precisely identifiable out in sort of the real world.
1: Yeah, so as an organism interacts with their environment and they participate, so even when they don't immediately receive a consequence from their participation, it doesn't mean that that participation isn't meaningful, it's not a meaningful interaction.
0: Right, and it's not going to lead to um, them having being later influenced by having participated in that event if they come into contact with something similar or the same event again. And so, you know, Thorndike's experiment that we talked about a couple episodes ago with the cats escaping from a box. One of the things he wanted to investigate was the extent to which a cat that was outside of the box could observe a cat in the box, solving the puzzle. And he, he found in his arrangement specifically Uh, that that observational in this case latent learning didn't occur that it took the cats the same amount of time to get out of the box whether they had previously observed another cat escaping from the box or whether they were just in there for the first time now That doesn't mean that it's not possible for a cat to learn from observation in fact that has been specifically demonstrated just in different circumstances so cats do learn from observing other things that are going on it just for them it is specific and how they perceive the world that they would are are likely to learn from observing so it does take place
1: yeah and otherwise you know when it comes to us as humans reading and watching videos would have no effect on our behavior, even though they clearly do, if it, if it weren't the case that we couldn't learn from these types of interactions.
0: Right. So when we do things and we observe things, we're likely to remember and later recognize that similar context when we come back to it, right? And so we immediately start building a pattern of habits, even sort of very weakly, sometimes so weak that we don't even know that we're developing them. We develop those habits the first time we engage with any activity, even just watching it. And so the cues of that context will still later influence our behavior and choices. Sometimes you could think of this maybe subconsciously that we don't recognize that we're being influenced in that way, you know, just from having experienced it that one time. But as we participate in those events, we we are we're there, we're interacting with it in some way. And so those cues can influence us later. That's, I'm just want to make sure I hit that point sufficiently enough to make sense that that is one thing that is going on. Another one I would like to talk about is that if you put an animal in a box and the animal is just sort of walking around, what it can be doing is, especially when it runs into these things like these dead ends and whatnot, is possibly the animal does not necessarily want to be in the box, right? Um, And there is some amount of motivation just to get around the corner, find a new place to go. And so... If you can imagine that if a rat turns one direction and there's nothing there and turns another direction and there is a place for it to go, that it will then go explore that new direction, which will probably end up in another dead end. There's no direction for it to go in, but um, it is escaping from confinement in a way by just exploring the maze and getting used to it. And getting out of the maze is not necessarily better because now you have to be around these humans who are gigantic and loud. Um, and maybe smell bad. I don't know how ma- how the mice feel about it. But um, there there's really no motivation for them to get out of the maze, but there is motivation to uh, just be able to explore the maze because it's getting around successfully in a particular environment. And so... That that would actually be a form of reinforcement every time that they're able to successfully move from one place to another new place. And so that that is actually something that's taking place while they're going about about doing this. And finally... I don't know whether or not they actually controlled for the fact that rats have incredibly incredibly powerful noses and right yeah and that if they put food in this maze that they would be able to direct their their um themselves toward that food um w- and still make relatively few errors like they could sort of figure out if I got to turn left or right is if I turn left is the smell stronger over there or right is the smell stronger over there and none of the groups were they entered the maze one time and there was food at the end to see how long it took. Now that being said, they did have uh group one had food available all the time and they did have how long it took them to get out and they did get much better at it. And the rats in group three were better after 11 days of, practice than the rats were on group on day one with having the food available. So um, that was sort of implied inside of that. um, But I do wonder in the extent to which the, uh, the rats could sort of follow the smell and were then more likely to be able to find their way through if they were motivated to do that, which in this case they were because they were hungry.
1: So let's go ahead and bring it home. Take homes.
0: All right. Sounds good. All right. So the first thing I want to say is that Tolman and Blodgett or both. They arranged a clever experiment that really facilitated a discussion that pushed the understanding of behavior and learning.
1: Absolutely. And the thing is, is, it's hard to say if latent learning itself is a very useful term to describe this phenomenon of observational and exploratory effects, because it sort of implies that there's some sort of like magical, unobservable acquisition of these skills.
0: Yeah. I mean, just look at the term latent learning suggests that there's learning taking place in a way that essentially can't be observed. We can't know that it's taking place. And there are situations in which it's not obvious necessarily how it's taking place, but I don't think it is impossible to know that it's taking place. And I think that we could specifically arrange those experiments that are more likely to show what is going on in these situations. So a cognitive map is not a cognitive map. We don't have in our brains this little map that we're actually following. Instead, what we're doing is we have a history of learning and and usually this low-stakes environment, but this history of learning and cues with a specific arrangement where we can still react to our, uh, our history with having been in the presence of those cues before. And there's still some amount of somehow being able to successfully navigate that situation where eventually it ended up in some outcome, but even the steps along the way were ones where there was a small amount of a little reward by hey, I just found a new place to explore, cool. And and that still happens. So it doesn't the idea of a hypothetical map that lives inside of our minds that can't be observed and isn't really there. It, it doesn't really make sense. It's not very parsimonious. We'll put it that way. It's, you know, we, we can look at, we know exactly the steps that are involved when we learn something new. And those things are definitely there. And then we don't know whether or not this cognitive map was there. And if you try and break it down in terms of what caused the behavior... Well, the cognitive map. How do you know the cognitive map caused the behavior? Because they successfully got through. Uh, they successfully got through the maze. Well, how they get through the maze? Because the cognitive map. That's right back to circular reasoning, right? And so it just. It, I don't think it lends itself very well to this uh, this discussion of how this takes place.
1: Absolutely, and you know, I think you summarized everything really well and just you know a final point that latent learning is participating in an event and observing the cues as a bystander or just simply being in your environment yes that can result in learning
0: right all right cool as long as you're like actually there and not in a coma or something
1: (laughs) precisely actively interacting perfect within a context
0: yes uh yes exactly all right, cool. So let's go ahead and, of course, say a big thank you to Britt Bowerly and Brittany Marie Dasanti for their research and writing and assistance in preparation for this episode. Um, and
1: Thank you, ladies. Yep,
0: <laughs> thank you, uh, everyone, for listening. And thank you for recording with me today, Miranda.
1: Pleasure, treasure.
0: <laughs> all right, well, with that, this has been Why We Do What We Do uh, episode on cognitive maps and all of that. Of course, you can reach us in all the ways on social media, email, all that sort of stuff. If you would like to reach out, I'm looking at the comments on SoundCloud. Uh, Those are something that I can read on here or just respond to directly, but you can find us there and then at uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all those places as well. So feel free to reach out to us. All right, perfect. This is Abraham.
1: This is Miranda. Uh, We're out. You've been listening to why we do what we do. Why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreoncom podcast You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at www.wwdwpodcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdwpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.